You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a former Air Force combat controller who will join us with a very special post-military mission that we wanted to get to. Uh, please follow us on the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Please continue to leave uh, comments and thumbs up on the YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Like all the uh, the, con- the content that we have up there as well. Go to our website, hazardground.com. You know about the Amazon promotion. We appreciate all the love and support. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage on hazardground.com. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donated a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. And we certainly appreciate all the love and support. Uh, remind you guys, still, we got some swag stickers. Uh, if you want some, hit us up on social media. We'll send you guys out a Hazard Ground swag sticker uh, for your liking, pleasure, whatever it is. And if you're watching on the YouTube channel, I can't explain why I'm so orange today. Just deal with it. Um, I'd love to tell you it's my summer tan, but it has something to do with technology that's not my friend. So uh, all that said, let's get into this week's guest who spent now over nine years in the Air Force as a combat controller. Now, incidentally, it's a little bit different than what we normally do because this individual actually missed combat altogether in his time. And this is all in a pre-9-11 world due to injuries and school and everything else, had a break in service, came back in but now runs an organization called the Outer Circle Foundation, uh, which is not only responsible for providing existence to veterans and first responders and PTSD and suicide prevention, but he's been a critical member in helping to get Afghans out of Afghanistan who helped the United States work with the United States after the fall of Afghanistan. And that is kind of a big part of the story that I wanted to share with this individual, including his time in the Air Force. He is Matt Payne joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Matt, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. How are you? Uh, great to connect with you. You are also here in Georgia, like myself, so we're not too far away from each other. It's good, good yeah. to uh, meet a, uh, somebody down the road from me. But it's interesting because I came across your profile, and this was uh, after uh, I had interviewed uh, Dan Schilling, who was also a uh, Air Force combat controller for Black Hawk Down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and coincidentally enough, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, you kind of missed combat. You missed that one along yep. with a bunch of other ones uh, due to a variety of reasons. And, and you know, while a lot of our, our service uh, or a lot of our discussions are, are or combat oriented, you know, when you and I started talking and, and I was learning more about your background, just what you're doing uh, with the Afghans now or, or ha- what we're doing, I should say, uh, is absolutely incredible. Um, and it's, it's one of those stories that I felt was important to bring to light because we've forgotten about it, right? Like not people who served alongside those interpreters and people who helped us, right? Like I always think about my, I know where he is. He's not anywhere in the Middle East anymore, but um, you know, you always think fondly of those people who, I had to put on the same flak vest even and helmet that you did and, and sort of go out there and uh, were subject to the same bullets, bombs, and explosions that you were uh, subject to, all just to help you get a mission done. And leaving them behind is somewhat of a, of a disastrous sort of set of circumstances. I won't editorialize it. I'll just – let's just leave it at it it's needs to be addressed um, in some size, way, shape, or form better than what – is being addressed now. So I appreciate you doing that. I think it's great that you are, and I want to get to that story. But first, I'd like to start with your your military service about how and why you got in the Air Force. Uh, so uh, going back, my dad was a second lieutenant in Vietnam. Um, he went over to Vietnam in November of 66. I was born in February of 67. He was killed in April. Um, so 
never got to meet him, but um, needless to say, it had a huge impact on me on things that I wanted to do and, and um, how I kind of wanted to live my life. So turn 18, I go and visit every recruiter, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Um, you know, like I said, he was, uh, he had went to Ranger School and done some stuff in, in Vietnam. So I, I was really interested in the Army, but ultimately the Air Force kind of reeled me in with combat control uh, and pararescue. So um, ultimately I went in and, you know, combat control is a very small career field, very few of us and um, very not well known um, across the board, which is really nice because we stay out of the limelight and uh, right. just do the mission, you know. I, I, I saw you get an mo- emotional moment ago. So this, if this is tough for you, please, by all means, but I'm curious what your mom had told you about your father and his service and what sort of conversations did you have about it? Yeah. So um Everything that I know about my dad was or is through photographs and and those that that I have met. So um, it's going to be wrong, but uh, um, I met the uh, the last photo taken of him alive I have, and um, it was he was Bravo Company Commander, and Joe Calloway was Charlie Company Commander, and um, Joe flew into it the middle of a firefight, and I I met Joe. He lives out in California. And um, we sat down, we talked about this photo and, you know, I, I said, my dad's talking on the radio and he's got a big smile on his face. He goes, yeah, he goes, that was one of the worst firefights we were ever in. And that's your dad. He was talking and joking and laughing. Joe spent the night with him. They were in a bunker and um, my dad talked about me and my sister and um, my mom and ultimately got up the next morning and uh, moved out with his squad and, um, uh, a gentleman um, up in Ezell, Kentucky, uh, Emil Witt was his first sergeant. He was standing next to him when my dad was killed. And um, I've had an opportunity to meet him. So, you know, my dad was six foot two, black hair, had the looks of Cary Grant, um, lit up a room, um, was in the military from the time he turned 16. So he was in from 57 on. So they called him the old man. He was 26 years old when he was killed. And, uh, but, you know, that was the life he, everybody loved him. He was the joy of the party. And um, it's just unfortunate. When uh, you told your mom that you wanted to go into the service, did she object at all knowing what had happened to your father? Uh, Well, I told my mom the night before I left that she needed to take me to the train station. And she goes, why, where are you going? Because every once in a while I go into New York city or something. We lived up in New Jersey. And uh, I said, Oh, I'm going to the military. And it was a done deal at that point. So she dropped me off and wow. off I went. And um, yeah, I never nuts. never told anybody, not a soul. But did she, you know, kind of lose it on you? No, I mean, she she understood. Um, you know, I, I, it took me a long time to grow up. Um, you know, I, I, um, I hated life for the longest time. Um, I hated people. Um, you know, I, I pinned everything back on everybody else that, you know, I got the, the crappy end of the stick. Um, and it took me a long time. Uh, but I mean, she got it. She didn't like it very much because, you know, when I went into the military, um, being part of the special operations world, you know, we would just disappear and be, and be gone. Um, you know, I try to write her or, um, call as often as possible. We had no cell phones back then. So I think it was ham radio. Like we would go, um, 
like to a ham radio operator, they'd make a connection and then we would end up speaking with somebody for as long as the connection would hold out. Um, but yeah, you know, she was very, very happy when I ended up uh, getting out of the military for sure. <laughs> uh, let's uh, again, talk real quickly about the combat controller aspect. I know you said you're interested in the army because your dad was a ranger. I mean, what about necessarily the air force and I mean, special ops? Yes. That makes a total, you know, a ton of sense, but what about necessarily the, um, idea of you know the air force and the combat controller world that kind of turned so, on yeah so i actually went into the military to be a pararescueman um that was my ultimate goal and when i went to the recruiter the recruiter gave me when you go into the military you get a guaranteed job right whatever that is um i was able to get a guaranteed job of combat control and pararescue was voluntary so when you go into basic training, you go into a room and they showed you a B-52 tail gunner, a pararescue video, a uh, survival school instructor, and one other um, video. And if anybody wanted to volunteer, you stood up and said, yeah, this is what I want to be. And they move you through. And if you make it, you make it. And if you don't, then you go back to your guaranteed job. So pararescue had a pass test. I went to the pass test and passed it. And I was waiting to get my contract changed. And a woman came up to me and goes, hey, are you the pararescue guy? I said, yes, I am. She said, didn't anybody tell you? And I said, no. She goes, you're not going to be pararescue. Go. And I, you know, I said, why? Combat control was understaffed. Pararescue was overstaffed. I was guaranteed combat control and they wouldn't change my career field. So ultimately I went in and ended up loving my job as a, as a combat controller and ended up working, you know, alongside pararescue men. Um, but you know, it, it was what it was and it, it became what it was supposed to be. So, yeah. Well, look, I mean, again, thank you for sharing, um, about your dad. I know it's tough. So I I appreciate you spending the moments doing that. How much did you read up on, you know, the idea of combat controller? What'd you know about it going in? Or were you one of those guys who just sort of went in blind? Yeah, I went in blind. I did not, you know, the, the recruiter gave me a little brochure, you know, uh, uh, being an air traffic controller in austere and non-permissive environments. And me as a 18 year old kid, what does that mean? You know, and um, we started 179 of us started combat control training. Six of us graduated. So, um, wow. Yeah, it is. It uh, through. Okay. So the- I have not had a lot of uh, background in the schoolhouse of combat control. I know the SF world very much. I know Bud's. Yep. Um, what is the enlighten the audience? What is the sort of process to get through the whole deal? So now understand, right? When I went in, it was much different than it is now. Right. So when I went in, we started at Air Traffic Control School in Biloxi, Mississippi. And you are a certified FAA certified air traffic controller, right? A lot of people go and get their tower rating and do different things. Um, but as you work through combat control school or uh, air traffic control school, right? Those that graduate then moved on to jump school with the army. After jump school, we went to combat control school at Pope Air Force Base. And that's where you kind of pulled everything together. Landing zones, drop zones, demolitions, weapons, uh, some jumps, um, leadership, and doing some of those things. Then you were assigned to a team and you would show up at that team And then I went to Halo School and Scuba School and Survival School and all of those when uh, opportunities arose to get to those schools. Now they go through what's called the OLJ, 
um, which is a eight week pre course of physical fitness. And if you pass that, then you get put into the pipeline. The pipeline is roughly about two years long and it goes through every single school that you're going to go to survival school, jump school, halo school, um, combat control school, air traffic control, the whole nine yards. So when you leave as a combat controller, you are fully trained. Then you go to your team and you go through what's called green team and uh, ultimately become combat ready. And then you're part of that team and off you go. Um, we had special operations teams at Probert was one and the 24th was the other. And then we had conventional teams um, that, and it was the difference that we worked landing zones and drop zones. I was part of the special operations world at Hurlburt. Um, and luckily that we worked a lot with the 24th and that's where I ended up was at, at JSOC at the 24th. Okay. Um, what's the hardest part? Uh, is it the army stuff, the jump school and everything else for you guys? I mean, because again, you know, uh, I don't forgive me for my, my very, uh, uh, limited knowledge of this. Yeah. I mean, as a Air Force, as a combat controller, right? Like you're directing air traffic. That's kind yeah. of, the, it's not exactly a physically demanding job. You're not asking yeah. people to be up, you know, for four days straight without food or water and survive. You're, 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 you're using a textbook type mentality, if you will, right? Like there's just yeah. a lot of learning and math and numbers and you're putting all together. So I don't say that to demean it, obviously, but yeah. I only say that in the sense of, did the physical stuff start to be like, okay, maybe this isn't worth it. Or, you know, I wasn't really necessarily physically prepared for all the stuff I had to do. Kind of where's your mindset through the whole process? Um, well, you kind of didn't have a choice, right? Up at four o'clock, get your room ready, go have chow, come in, go to class. You're in class until four o'clock, get out of class, immediately go and change to PT. You're at PT from four 30 to probably six 30. And that, I mean, I think we did 2,300 push-ups on a given day. We would run oh, six to 12 miles. Um, you get done with, with the physical aspect of things. You go and eat chow, and then you have to get your uniform ready, and you're studying for all your exams, right? Everything from an air traffic control standpoint, weather, ground operations, tower operations, um, non-radar, you know, all of that. And then by the time you go to bed, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and you're up again at 4 so, you know, it's, it's both mental and physical at that point in time. And, you know, it, it's, there is a very, very high level of expectations put on somebody who was going through the pipeline, whether they are going to be able to cut it with their team, work as a team, but also do they have the mental fortitude or the physical ability to do it as well? Um, jump school was actually the easiest um, for me. I mean, it was pretty much straightforward. You did PT, you went and jumped out of a plane, big deal. That was it. And then off you went. Um, you know, everything else was learning demolitions, learning the weapons, learning uh, air traffic control, putting it in context with um, landing zone operations and drop zones and learning, you know, weight bearing ratios of, of uh, runways and how wide a taxiway is and building everything out of dirt. Um, and then, you know, staking everything out and doing all of that, that's just kind of where it comes in. Right. So we are the, the, um, we know a lot about everything, but, you know, really focus on whatever it is. Some guys focused on communication, some guys focused on, uh, uh, close air support, but you have to know it all and you have to know it inside and out 
and be very, very good at it at the same time. All right. So you get through all the schooling uh, and you finally finish this portion of things. What year month are we talking here? Because, again, we're pre 9-11. We're pre Gulf War, too, actually. Right. Yeah. 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 We are uh, November of 86. OK, so, um, you know, now, you know, you're going into austere environments, you're going to remote parts of the world and everything else. And, you know, these are the missions that we don't find out happen until later on and everything else. But uh, are you anticipate? Are you going into this anticipating? Hey, I'm going to go see some some ish. I'm going to go to places nobody else. Like, are you in the mindset of send me us to wherever we're going to go where, where we got to go get bad guys kind of deal? Yeah. So remember, right. Uh, 83, I think was Grenada. Grenada. So that was kind of the last hurrah, right. Of, of real world experience from the boys prior to me coming in in 85. So, um, you know, all of the skirmishes that, that took place and, you know, you're prepping and you're training and you're continuing going to schools and you're building your craft and you're upping your, your level of experience and learning from those that have come before you and, and, you know, seeking their knowledge and, and everything that goes involved with that, you are trying to be that guy who is going to be assigned to an SF team, a SEAL team, uh, whatever it is that you are going to, they're going to look to you and say, we need help, make it happen. And that's where it all comes together is, you know, in that aspect of things. What are you doing leading up to, uh, I mean, the next major sort of special operations event we have is operation just cause in Panama. Right. Um, So it's 86. You said that that doesn't happen until the end of 88. What, what, what's going on with you? Are you guys just training at this point in time? Yeah, we're training. We're doing exercises. You know, we had some guys that would go out and train with other military units and teach them some things that we were doing. Um, You know, we uh, team spirit was a big, big exercise at that point in time. We do exercises. Um, We do a lot of work with the Rangers we had operational readiness inspections to make sure that we remained combat ready. Um, and then don't forget, right. Even though just cause happened in, uh, I watched them go over my house in December of 89, we probably started training for that in 87. You know, there's, there's little things that come out and you're doing, you know, things here and there and stop, start, stop, start, do this, do that. And, you know, you're prepping for that stuff as it comes. And then ultimately you're just waiting for the call. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to note, too, and I, I probably should have said this with the other Air Force combat controls we've had on, but they only kind of need one of you, maybe two, like for any given set of mission subsets. It's not like you're deploying a whole, you know, uh, barrage of, of Air Force combat controllers because you just don't need them, right? Like one person can handle the job. No, uh, no, no. 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 So how many? So, yeah, you got to figure just cause, right? They jumped into Omar Treos International Airport and took the entire airfield. That is more than one combat controller. We're setting up lights. We're, we're marshalling airplanes. We're clearing the runway, right? We're doing all of that stuff while fighting the oppositional forces and prepping our guys that are up overhead to either drop or come in and land. Um, it, it takes many. To- okay. So, well, I guess I was going with the question and my supposition was wrong, obviously, but where I was going, you know, you're all, you're waiting for the call. It's like, well, how do you know who's, first in the hopper to go and who's not because again like you don't deploy as a unit though you would you we deploy as a team right so um there could be one or two of us there could be um an entire package that would do an airfield seizure right so whatever that looks like is wherever you are and you kind of 
what you're doing leading up is you are showing the head shed that I know my craft. Therefore, I want to put be put in the toughest mission you can come up with. Okay. That's that's ultimately the goal, right? Is is that you build the credibility, you build the confidence in them to say, hey, I want you to do this because we know you have the capability of doing it. Now, interesting. Again, we, we said at the beginning, you sort of missed combat. You talked about the planes flying over your head. Yeah. Uh, why weren't you on one of those planes? Uh, I tore my anterior cruciate in um, either 88 or 89. Um, and ultimately, they told me it wasn't torn. I went up to Pennsylvania, saw Joe Torg, the head knee guy in the world. He said, yeah, you tore your anterior cruciate. I came back. And ultimately, when you tear your anterior cruciate, your tibia and fibia here and your femurs up here. And that, that ligament keeps your knee from doing this. Yep. So over the course of four or five months, my knee would dislocate and come back. Ultimately, I had surgery in September of 89. And that surgery requires two metal screws that are put in your knee. At that point in time, if you had metal in your body, you couldn't pass a flight physical. So therefore, I couldn't be a combat controller anymore. And so ultimately, I was out of the military because when you're not a combat controller, you go to the needs of the Air Force. So they need a cook, they need a bus driver, they need a mechanic, they need a whatever. That's what you become. And that's just, you know, I came in to be a combat controller. I didn't want to be anything else. So out I went. All right. So you you end up uh, missing this whole deal. Um, Did you think at that point in time your career was going to be over? Yeah, I did. Were were you fighting it? Were you just like, this is what it is? Were you pissed? Were I mean, what what do you? What's your emotions towards the whole thing? Oh, dude, I was so so. um, I sat. I remember being in my in my hospital bed, just coming out of surgery. And I got a, a telephone call that my, I think my mom took and said, hey, the first sergeant's over with your reenlistment papers. And um, so he came over and, and sat next to me. And, and ultimately, I was getting ready to sign. And he goes, oh, by the way, did somebody tell you you're not able to be a combat controller anymore? And I was like, uh, no, nobody told me that. And uh, they were like, yeah, you have metal in your body, so therefore you can't. And dude, I, I mean... At the end of the day, what does a screw in my knee have to do with anything that we're dealing with? And I think at that point in time, they just didn't know how strong it was going to be, if it was going to be able to maintain or whatever. But uh, to be pissed off is not even to put it in perspective (laughs) Um, with everything that I went through, all of the, you know, everything that happened over the last four years and and the, the burden we put our body through, the time we spent away. I mean, I think the average combat controller um is gone over 300 days a year ballpark um you know through tdys and and doing different things so i mean we were always on the move and on the go and you know you do that and you get hurt doing what you're doing and now you're you're sitting you know watching everybody fly over that you trained for two years um prepping for and off they go and you're reading about it in the newspaper when you are forced out, what do you know what you're doing next? Do you know how you're handling things? No. I called my uncle. My uncle had a machine shop in Baltimore. And I called him and I said, hey, you know, and I, t- I talked it over with him. He goes, look, come work for me and, uh, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll, go, we'll have you go to college. And um, when I was in high school, I was a big, big soccer player. And um, I got out. I hey, went that's to- why your knee went to shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's part of it for sure. 
Um, I went to work for my uncle. I worked for him for three months. It was not for me. Um, so I moved back up to New Jersey. I, I moved in with my mom. I went to college. I played college soccer. My knee held up perfectly fine. And I got to the point where I just called the military back and I said, look, can I, is there any way I can come back in? Is there anything I can do? Can I go get the screws out? Can I do this or that? And they told me, oh, by the way, we have a waiver now. You can come directly in. And um, so I talked to Craig Brochi, who was my commander at the time down at Fulbert. He was now the commander at JSOC. And ultimately, I went directly to JSOC. And that's where I went back in uh, December of 91. December of 91. Yep. Calendar here. Uh, that whole Gulf War thing. Yep. Missed it. Missed it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So now we're 0 for 2. Do you yep. think at this point in time when you get back in, like, because of your interest and everything else, is is your mindset now different? Like, I'm not going to combat. Like, I'm going to just end up being in a different job kind of deal. And no. I have to. It, no. Okay. So you still think you're going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're prepping everything. I mean, you know, uh, at, at um, you know, in I went to a team at, at JSOC that was not an operational team. It's a support team. Right. And, and we had combat controllers that were on there and they would go out and do different things in order to go to an operational team. I had to get my skills back up because I'd been away for a year and 11 months. Um, and then I had to go through selection and selection is a very different animal. Like everybody knows, you know, the Q course and, and everything else with the SF we have our own. And, um, you know, that's, I mean, I went through selection. I was part of the operational teams and, you know, you're ready to go. Unfortunately, I tore my anterior cruciate, my left knee. And I remember standing on crutches, watching them go to Somalia and off they roll. And, you know, I just had my left knee reconstructed. So you tore your right one and then you came back in and you tore your left. And in between that desert storm happened and you weren't there for that either. So we have conveniently or inconveniently uh, missed combat on multiple occasions here. Yep. Um, is there a part of you that is now thinking after that, Hey, maybe uh, this line of work just isn't for me. No, no. I had another, I've, I've had four at this time. I had three surgeries. I had my fourth right before we went to Haiti. And, um, <laughs> we got back I was from, gonna ask you about. <laughs> yeah. So we go to Haiti and, you know, we, we did what we did in Haiti. Um, I don't think a bullet flew in Haiti, but you know, we were in and out of country doing various things, um, down there. Um, I got back and our orthopedic surgeon at JSOC pulled me aside and goes, look, dude, you've had four knee surgeries. I will give you five years before you do so much damage that you're never going to walk again. And, you know, when your orthopedic surgeon stand there saying that to you, you're like, uh, okay. He goes, let me put your records in front of the medical review board and let's see what they say. And this happened at the end of January the end of March, I'm standing outside the gate with my bags, not knowing what the hell I'm going to do. So I was medically retired at that point in time, and off I go. And again, just remember for for um, you know, sake for those who may not remember or don't know what happened in Haiti during uh, Operation Uphold Democracy, there was an invasion. We did get on ground, but the Haitians kind of went back and said, "Well, they kicked everybody's ass in Grenada, and they kicked everybody's ass in Panama, and." Uh, they probably uh, will kick our ass. So let's just not get into a skirmish with these folks. And uh, um, that was about it. I think one Navy interpreter was wounded during the entire uh, yeah. skirmish, if you will. And that was it. So you you got deployed. But again, as you said, not a shot in, not a shot in anger was ever fired. 
right. on either side. Uh, how do you decide when, you know, for you, like, how do you decide when I'm done fighting this battle with my knees and, and the military and everything else, and I'm going to go out and get out and do a different thing? Uh, when I sat down and talked to the orthopedic surgeon, right. And he said, let's, let's see what the medical review board says. And, um, you know, when I, I did that, that's fine. Just to put it in perspective for you, as I sit here right now, I've had 15 knee surgeries. Oh I've my, had my God. right shoulder reconstructed. I've had my right hip replaced. I, I mean, dude, it just goes on and on and on. You're Humpty Dumpty right now, man. Yeah. 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 Can't wait so. for that. Um, <laughs> Okay, so you're sort of medically retired, forced out. I mean, you know, yes, you're medically retired. I shouldn't say forced out, but you're medic. And the only reason I use that term is because the question I'm sort of loading up for is, um, was there a part of you that felt like because you couldn't finish a long career or weren't medically capable of doing it, did any part of you feel like you might have let your dad down or anything like oh, that? Any, any of those? Feel- okay, so kind of where, where, how much is that messing with your head? A lot. Um, I can remember the day I became older than him. Um, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, uh, you know, he, he was killed. He has a silver star, bronze star, purple heart, um, some other, other things, you know, his ranger tab and, and jump wings and things. Um, but it, you know, in, in my head, as I went through my life, I should have seen combat like him. I should have not necessarily been killed, but, you know, lived up to things that he did um, in perspective to what I was trying to do. So, yeah, I mean, it still weighs on me today, you know, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of walk through this with me. Um if you had done all those things and survived, uh, what, what, I guess, what would make you feel better? Have you ever sort of had this conversation with yourself? What, what would have you validated in yourself had you made it to uh, Panama and, you know, were there? Had you made it through Black Hawk Down? Or have you made it through Desert Storm? Like, if you were in all these engagements and got out, like, what in your mind makes you have some sort of approval from your dad that you don't have anyway. I, 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 I've pondered that. I've toyed with that. I don't have an answer for that. I, I just don't, um, you know, I, I think on some level, right. I mean, it, it's almost a little bit of survival, survival's guilt, right. So sure. you know, he did, he was killed. I should have gone in and done everything that I could have and whether I got killed or not, there it goes. Right. I mean, it is what it is. Um, but it, it's, it's not having the opportunity and being as, as trained, highly trained as we are really irritates the shit out of me. Sure. That, I, that I get like that to me makes a little bit more sense. Right. Yeah. Like, um, you know, the, the the whole have I been tested? Have I been you know yeah. have I have I survived? Kind of you know could, could I would I be able to 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 thrive in this? Uh, you know when called upon that I understand. Um, yeah. I just kind of and, and you know part of me is sort of apologetic in asking you these challenging questions about oh, your dad. Yeah, I just, no. You know I I, uh, I I think it's critical to your story. Um, 
And, and I would argue, and we'll get to this here in a moment, but, you know, for whatever you fail to accomplish in uniform, the things you're accomplishing out might have a greater impact um, making your father equally as proud of you for what you're doing now than what you could have done in uniform. I mean, you know, God has a plan, right? And a right. lot of people sit and look and, and say, you know, how can you get up on a plane and, you know, X number of thousand feet in the middle of the night and jump out? And in my, the way I go through life is God has a plan for you. If it's my turn to die, whether I'm in a car and with a parachute on, yeah. in a bathtub, whatever it is, I am going to go. My decisions have led me to that point in time and it wasn't my turn. And Obviously, God had different things for me, and this is what we're doing, right? We're here trying to make everybody's life better, doing different things, trying to give back, and and the like. So, yeah. All right. So, you're out of the military now. Uh, you're moving on, and um, I'm curious as to – because, you know, obviously, between now and the fall of Afghanistan, between when you get out in 95 – and the fall of Afghanistan, a whole bunch of things happened, including 9-11. Yep. Um, you know, how do you know when and where you, uh, you know, where, how do you sort of figure out what you're going to do with your life after you get out? So, like I said, I, you know, I had two months and I, I didn't know. I went back to New Jersey and I waited tables. And, you know, one day I would wake up and say, oh, I want to be a fireman. Next day, I would wake up and say, oh, I want to be a chef. Next way, I would work up and say, wake up and say, oh, I want to be a cop. Ultimately, I gravitated towards law enforcement, trying to find the same camaraderie, the same sure. uh, team that we had in the military and in law enforcement. And, you know, I, I became a cop and, and did a bunch of things there. And remember, when I got out, I was physically fit. I was able to do things. It was the lifestyle of a combat controller that would or would not have, you know, caused further injury and everything else. Um, you know, and the life of a cop is a little different than, than that of a, a combat controller. So, you know, I was able to have a, a pretty good career as a cop and, uh, you know, do the things that I did. So, yeah. Um, I was going to say you're a cop in New Jersey, um, during nine 11, Yep. So uh, kind of take me through that experience. Yeah, I remember. I remember exactly where I was. Um, I was in our squad room. I was a detective in, in Trent, New Jersey, and uh, came on the TV and we were like, you know, what's going on? And, um, you know, watched the whole thing. I went home that night and I, I knew that ultimately the guys were going at, at some point in time. Um, you know, I just didn't know how quickly that they were going. Um, and you know, if for those out there that don't know the horse soldier statue is at ground zero, it's in the tranquility garden. And if you've never seen it, you can Google it. It's about 10 feet tall. It's a guy coming off the mountain on a horse. That guy on that horse is Bart Decker, one of my former teammates. So he is a combat controller on that horse. Um, I remember that picture from either time or Newsweek or, or one of the, the news articles that came out, there's a big plaque at the bottom. Um, but you know, the boys went and, and then that they kicked off kind of everything that went on. And then you have John Chapman and you have, you know, some of the other guys that have just done amazing things out there with their heroism and capabilities to 
to do what they've done across the board. You were in Hillsborough, New Jersey at that point in time, right? Was I was, the- no, I was in Trenton. So I was a street cop until um, August of 2001. And then I became a detective at, uh, in, at the Mercer County Prosecutor's Office in Trenton. So, gotcha. okay. um, right. yeah, so I was there. I, was say, I mean, I know, I know a bunch of people, obviously, you know, you're, you're what about uh, 90 minutes away from New York city, not even, yeah. uh, you know, right there, but. Uh, so three, I think three days after um, the towers fell, we were in the city helping uh, do different things. We had a bunch of guys that went out to fresh kills, the the landfill where everything was, was moved to Thank looking you. for personal effects and, and things. So, you know, we, we played our part as much as we could not being there. I actually called the military and said, I want back in. And they were like, yeah, no, you can't come back in. So see ya. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, without, you know, fast forwarding too much. I mean, you still have this life in, you know, law enforcement and everything else um, throughout the next, you know, several years as both wars in Iraq and Afghanistan go on. Uh, you know, I, I guess I wonder, do you ever, did you ever sit there and, and watch these wars unfold? And I mean, I know you kind of wanted to be a part of it uh, and, and do your part, but, you know, 20 years of it has gone by uh, for Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, is there any part of you at all that's sort of like, I didn't need to be there. I didn't need to do that. You know, I'm glad I didn't have to go kind of deal. I served in another capacity. Yeah, I mean, I I think to your point, I think what we're doing now has a pretty big impact on, you know, lives and and things. Um, You know, I'm a very simple guy. I just look and and I go through life and say, you know, how are you going to make the world a better place? What are you going to do to give back as much as you can? to use your skills, use your ability to, you know, do as much as you can. And, you know, that's why I think I was a cop. That's why I was in the military. That's why I'm in security and, and everything else. And ultimately now without a circle and all that, um, God just had a different plan. You know, he had a different, a different trajectory for me. And, you know, now we're able to do some other things and help as much as we can. All right. I, I do want to fast forward to Outer Circle Foundation. Uh, and I, I guess, you know, where you got to in the idea, well, even when you founded Inner Circle Solutions, um, you know, you have a bunch of, you know, former soft guys there, intelligence community guys, chief of police and everything else. You're still doing this sort of, um, for lack of a better word, like clandestine operations where you're working behind the scenes um, to do things. But how do you end up getting connected with Afghans and getting them out? So we we opened Inner Circle and Outer Circle at the same time. Right. And Outer Circle kind of sat because we knew what we wanted to do, help veterans and first responders. And, but getting the consulting firm up and running and getting business and everything was taking a lot of time. And um, my wife and I have a condo down in Destin. And we were down at one of the little local places having lunch and my phone rang and it said, it was, you know, one of the guys and Hey, we need some help with Afghanistan. Would you be able to help? We didn't have a website. We didn't have anything. And um, I called my guy that helped me with a website for inner circle and said, look, this is what we're doing. Can you stand me up a website very quickly? And he did in a day. 
and we were able to take donations. We were able to do the things that we were doing. And through, you know, the network, I got connected in with a bunch of nonprofits and, and different people. And we just started sorting out of who can do this, who can do that. What skill set do you have? You know, how many cases can you handle? And ultimately, you know, we work together with making the best of the worst situation you could possibly have with leaving, you know, the guys there. I mean, when he says we need some help with Afghanistan, like what's your first thought? Like how? Like what? what, what I mean, yeah, I, like, I, yeah. What do you want me to do? Yeah. I, you know. I, do you want me to take out the Taliban again? Like what am I supposed yeah. to do? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. But, you know, ultimately, right, through the nonprofits, through everybody, we were able to, you know, figure out, okay, here's the cases, the interpreters and those that were part of the interpreters are part of the SID, the Special Immigrant Visa Program. And here are everything that we need to do for them. And, you know, I mean, it was moving people. people. What's the I wouldn't even know where to start. Like my first thought would be, okay, well, we got to put somebody on the ground there. Right. Like that's my first thought. Somebody there were people on the ground. ground. Yeah, okay. there were people on the ground. Well, so, and, I mean, and some of them I do know. Some of them I've actually interviewed on this yeah. show. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, what is the process to get somebody out when the, the United States government isn't helping you do it? So um, how do I say this without getting into trouble? Um, Let so, me say, I'm willing to get into trouble. Yeah, I know. All right, me too. Um, so a lot of it was initially moving them around to get them to safety, right? Finding safe houses, finding, and you're not allowed to say the word safe houses, finding them houses of refuge or whatever it is that we're supposed to call them. Why can't we say um, safe houses? Hold on a second. Why, yeah, I mean, yeah. why can't we say that? I don't know. There was some, some aspect of yeah, terms that we're not allowed to use anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, moving them around, getting to, to areas. And there was a lot of, of, um, I guess, misinformation, hey, a plane's supposed to go out of here. So, you know, could we get people on this manifest or could we do this or could we do that? And it got to the point where, you know, you're on telephone calls with there's some ambassadors, there's some uh, other people and, and there's some things. And, you know, you're you're really learning very quickly of the hierarchy of how somebody is going to get out of the country and some of the politics that goes on with getting the resources, getting the capabilities in order to move people um, out. And, you know, there, there was a lot of things that we learned along the way. Um, Luckily we had some great, great people that were, were part of the organizations. Um, You know, we were collecting money, so we were able to fund buses and, and transportation and, and some of the locations and food and and different things from from that perspective, and then ultimately you're given a caseload and you are monitoring and tracking these people, making sure they're safe, check, checking in with them. Uh, my wife is is right over on the other table and she was cracking up a couple of minutes ago because I mean I think for probably a a year I mean I was working during the day and then up all night because now you're on the the Afghan time or right. Pakistan time or whatever. And, you know, checking in with people and, and making sure everybody's okay and all that. And you'd sleep an hour here or sleep an hour there. And it was no different for me than it was for anybody else. I mean, everybody was doing the same thing. And- what level of danger 
was going on at that point in time. Like, I mean, not to get all Hollywood, right? Like, yep. you know, are we talking like Argo? Like they're looking for the American hostages? Oh, yeah. You know, like, I mean, oh, yeah. actively going, going searching house to house, looking for, for people. So, okay. Yep. So we yep. had Americans on ground, right? Who were walking the streets of Kandahar, Bagram, whatever it may be, uh, moving people around from facility to facility. Cause I don't want to say that S H word. Um, Haven to haven, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and and they are, their lives are on the line every single moment of every day. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the work that I did was through Afghans, right? Okay. So we had a, a network of Afghans and, you know, they would be our trusted source, right? And, you know, you'd vet people and you'd have people come to you and say, hey, I want to do this or I want to do that. And either you better come to me with a very good credential base and somebody behind you that I can call and say, hey, did this person do what they're telling me they did? Or how can I vet you to make sure that you are legit and you're not going to do something? Because, I mean, there were bounty on people's heads. We had a child get shot in the face. There were people that were pregnant that we had to move to hospitals so they could have their babies. Um, We had guys get shot in the shoulder, shot in the hand. Like they were actively hunting these guys as much as they possibly could, not only them, but their families, right? So, you know, you got to think about it. If, if I can't get you, but I can get your family, well, I'm going to hold your family and you better come out yeah. and I'm just going to start killing them one by one. Um, I they, saw that in Iraq with a lot of my Iraqi soldiers. who Yeah. Are- yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's unfortunate. So you're working as fast as you can. You're trying to get everybody corralled. You're moving them into locations. Then alert would come out. Hey, they're searching this location. If you got people, get them out of there or make sure that they're doing you know, X, Y, or Z. And I can't imagine the number of hands that were involved in this. Oh, a ton. There were a ton of hands. Now, involved. again, and none of those hands actually had a direct line to the federal government, though. Like, these were all people like you and people I knew who were doing this stuff on the ground because we felt like we owed it to them, not because the government was leading some sort of mass or some sort of important mission to get these people home. Yeah, that at, at one point in time, and I don't know when it was, right, we got word that the FBI was starting to knock on people's doors and they were going to start. Like Americans' doors. Yeah, American doors. Yeah, like our doors. Like <laughs> you, uh, you guys are doing something wrong in direct, you know, um, uh, in direct relation to, you know, different than what the government wants or right. is, is trying to do. So therefore, you are our enemy as well. And they never came to my door. But they came to a couple of people's doors and, you know, it, what was, it that, con- was that conversation just like that? Hey, if you don't cease and desist right now, uh, we're going to bring you in kind of deal. Or was it just sort of a stern slap on the wrist kind of warning? Hey, knock it off. I don't know because I wasn't part of it. But, okay. you know, I know it happened and I know that they were tracking money very closely, right, where we were sending money and how we were getting there. Like, you know, if you had a security clearance, you can't use Hawala. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that were in play. And ultimately, you know, I, I, me and my wife sat down and we had a long conversation and basically it's this, look, we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And if somebody comes to me, that's fine because you don't want my, my story on the Washington post. You don't right. want it in the New York times. Right. Roll the dice and, and, yeah. and let's play the game. If you, if, if you want the world to see how bad you're really doing this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which yeah. again, to the point of, to, you know, to, to the hazard ground audience, it's like, you know, when we typically focus on combat and everything else, it's like, 
That's why I want this story out there because it's still going on today and it's it's still part of it. Let's, let me just clarify timeline for the other. All this happened after the actual fall. All of your work happened after the actual fall. Like, you know, and again, I, I, I don't know why. Well, I do know why. Government bureaucracy is the reason why all these people weren't out earlier. Like, yeah. that's just what it boils down to. You talk about the special immigrant visa, the SIVs. That process, that program is taken forever you know, in all of 2021, prior to the fall, when we kind of knew we were pulling out and, uh, you know, the rumblings were coming and everything else. So, um, but I think that that is, uh, you know, I've said it repeatedly, courage comes in all different forms, right? And I think that that is an an immense form of courage for all you guys who uh, literally, excuse me, um, literally put yourselves in the crosshairs of the federal government and federal government organizations, um, because a lot of people wouldn't want to be bothered. They just would. It's not worth the headache, you know, especially for uh, people they don't know. And, and what's crazy is these are people you I get the guys who served alongside the interpreters wanting them out. Like, I, I, I get that you personally have no connection to any of these folks other than the special operations community, people that you worked with, worked with them or to some extent, you know, you're a d- degree of separation or two away, um, you know, but I. And it, I you know, it's, it's interesting I, because the interpreters have the SIV process, the commandos, right? The special forces commandos, the Afghan commandos, nope. they don't fit into the SIV process. So there's no real process for them to go through in order to get here. And, you know, they're being hunted left and right. And, you know, they're, they're doing what they, what they need to do. Um, but, you know, I, I'm still working with a couple of people here and there and helping them with, you know, SIV cases as we can, but also is there a way we can do something for the commandos? And that's, that's a big question to be answered. And I don't know the answer to that right now. How nerve wracking is it when you're getting somebody out, like, and they're on the flight Uh, again, I, I don't know why I go back to the movie Argo, but it's just like, you know, you're waiting for that signal that the flight is all clear and it's taken off and it's airborne and it's out of Afghan airspace and it won't be shot down kind of deal. Right. Like, I mean, what, what is that emotionally like for you? So it it's even more than that leading up just because your name's on the manifest does not mean that you're going to be on that plane. Right. right. So we don't know if they're on until we get a confirmed manifest, because again, right, there's political things going on. So if somebody said, Hey, I want five people on there. Well, five people got to drop off and it, it would just be, you know, that, that chaos and pandemonium of whether this is going to happen or not. And, um, but once you got that text message that said, you know, wheels up and, and everything's good, then it was just a relief. But don't forget, you had 50 other ones behind it. So you can only relief for so long until you're, you know, making sure the other ones have food, have water, are safe, moved around. There's no searches going on. There's nothing going on with them and, you know, the like. And, you know, it, it just, you know, and trust me, there's people that were way more involved with this than I was, you know, and I was trying to do my little part. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, it was a lot of work to do what we were able to do with the resources that we had and the ability to do it all given, you know, kind of what we were faced with. Um, have you gotten a chance ever to meet the people that you've gotten out face to face and shake their hand? 
So they got Christmas cards from people that, that are here. Um, when they got here, you know, I'd send them money and help support them here to make sure that they had a job and had a car and, you know, kids are going to school and, and things like that. Um, so actual meeting, no, I've, 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 we've talked to a couple of people and said, you know, let's try to catch up, but it just didn't work out from a timing perspective, but, you know, I will message with them. I will make sure that they're okay and check in with them periodically. So, you know, it, it is a huge deal to watch them in Afghanistan and then ultimately land somewhere here in the United States and their kids are going to school, they're flourishing, they're getting a job, you know, they're, they're working and everything's going well, family's learning English and they have quote unquote, that American dream that, you know, is the American dream. They're, they're now here doing it. So it's really cool. How much more is left of this, this particular mission? Like how, how, I, I don't want to ask the question, how do you know when you're done? I mean, it's easy yeah. to say yeah, we get every last one of them out, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's – I don't know. As sad as it is to say, that's not a realistic expectation. It's just not. Like, the fact of the matter is that without the full resources of the federal government behind this, we're not going to get every last one out. We're, we're going to leave people behind. That's, that's unfortunately the nature of what we have created. Um, but how do you know for you when you've sort of done enough – so I knew when our caseload started dropping and I had one case that was uh, causing me a lot of grief and a lot of grief, meaning this person should have been out years ago, way before and has done so much for this country. And, um, you know, I'm still working it to this day. I, I, I'm still working the case. Um, and, but we made the decision as a foundation last summer that we were going to wind down, you know, the full support of Afghanistan and then really shift the mission to our U.S. Uh, veterans and first responders with PTSD, suicide prevention and transition help. Um, still helping the families that we had, you know, like I said, I have, I have people that come out of the woodwork and, Hey, can you help me do this? Can you help me do that? Yeah, I'll help you. But from a foundation perspective, we are not putting money and resources together on that. I will connect. I will help in any way I can. Um, but we knew at that point in time that it was just it was going to be a long term um, objective for those organizations that that is their sole function in life. And we had more that we want to do here in the United States. So that, therefore, we shifted our focus back to the U.S. veterans and, and first responders. Okay. Um, to that end, <laughs> now that you've pivoted for me, um, where, where, where are you in that process? Where are you, um, you know, about it uh, as far as, you know, helping the veterans and where's, is there a focus in one particular area more than the other type deal? So um, there's, there's a couple of things that we're doing. Um, you know, we started, we, like I said, we shifted last year. So the money that we brought in for Afghanistan stayed with Afghanistan, and we needed to raise some money for uh, what we were going to do um, with our U.S. side. So we held a golf tournament last year, um, really successful, got a lot of companies behind us. And um, one of the things that I'm really focused on is alternative methods to PTSD. 
And, um, you know, I think every combat controller, everybody in the special operations world, whether you fought in 9-11 or, or whatever, some of the things that you did, the crashes, the, the injuries that you saw, I, I mean, there, everybody has PTSD from some way, shape or form. And, you know, I dealt with it for 30 years. And ultimately I went and um, the first course is, okay, go see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist puts you on every kind of medicine that you can imagine, narcotics and SSRI inhibitors and mood stabilizers and this and that. And you become a zombie, right? You're, you're not able to do the things that you're doing. And some of the veterans are throwing that away and then they're going to self-medicate and whether it be alcohol or drugs or, you know, some other type of thing. So what other medicines are there out there? What other treatment capabilities are there? And there's a couple, there's the stellate ganglion block, there's hiawaska, there's some work being done with psychedelics and psychotropics. You know, I, I hate to cut you off here because I have yep. to get it, but I've heard and I've read about the psychedelic thing. Yep. Uh, I've seen a couple of, um, oh God, there've been television shows and like kind of yep. documentaries on it and whatnot. Um, you know, and you know, psychedelics were classified as like the same level of heroin as a drug years, like in the seventies, you know, like it, it became one of those things like, but we found out really, you know, through more research and it's kind of sort of like, Hey, you know, let's take a little deeper look at what we initially thought, you know, a la COVID and then <laughs> come up with a better answer with, with more research. Hey, yeah. guess what? Psychedelics aren't that bad. Um, yeah. I'm not in a position to tell anybody whether to take them or not. So don't, don't look at this as an endorsement, but yeah. we, we, we have found, and there is, significant scientific research to back up that psychedelics have been a major breakthrough in veterans PTSD. Yes. Yep. And the, and I can't wait to take, (laughs) yeah, I'm loading up. Can't wait. Send some my way. Yeah. So uh, the stellate ganglion block, I don't know if you know that or not. There's two bundle of nerves in your neck. They're the ganglion bundles nerves. It connects your autonomous nervous with your sympathetic nervous system, which makes your fight or flight system, right? That's, and ultimately, you know, your fight or flight system is in overdrive. It just stays active, which, uh, you know, not sleeping, nightmares, very short, a lot of different things that go along with that PTSD. Um, Dr. Lynch runs the Stellet Institute up in um, Annapolis. He was a JSOC doctor when I was there. Boys start coming back. He starts doing a lot of research into PTSD and how to treat it and, and different things. Um, I chose to do the stellate ganglion block before I would go do ayahuasca or one of the other, um, other things. And like I said, right, my first course of action was from a therapist to a psychiatrist with on clomazepam, which is one of the worst narcotics that I've ever been on in my life. You had to take two at night, one in the morning, and walked around like a zombie. And um, so I, I got a hold of Lynch. Um, I went up, I had that. The ganglion block is not a long-term treatment. It is not a fix. It is a temporary solution that alleviates the aspects of PTSD to the point where you can sleep. It reduces nightmares. It does a bunch of different things for people. How long it lasts is based on the person based on the severity of the PTSD and other factors that come, um, come along with it. And um, it is approved by the VA. The Atlanta VA will do it. Um, I think there are three or four VAs 
throughout the United States that will give the ganglion block. And one of my former teammates um, is the SEAC. So he's a senior enlisted advisor to the Joint Chiefs. Yeah, I know. We interviewed one here on the show. Yeah, CZ. So CZ was... No, John Troxell was the one that we... He was the third uh, SEAC. Okay. So CZ is there now. Um, okay. um, Ramon Colon Lopez is there. So he he's there. He's a pararescueman. And, you know, I got a hold of him and I was like, look, dude, even though the VA does it, you got to go and do all of these other psycho medicines, you know, the, the narcotics and the SSRI and, and this. And he goes, no, dude, we passed the stellate ganglion bill, I think. And I, I'm probably going to get this wrong. But basically, if you go to the VA and you're diagnosed with PTSD, you can tell them, I want the ganglion block. And you bypass all of those medicines and all of the other typical treatments for PTSD. And you go directly to the stellate ganglion block which is great. And, but not a lot of people know about it. Um, and so that's one of the things that we're doing. I met with the governor's office three weeks ago and had a long conversation with them. And I, I told them about the ganglion block and they were like, we never heard of that. We didn't even know. Which existed. governor are we talking about? The one in Georgia? Yeah. Here in Georgia. Yep. Um, I met with their policy person that, that dealt with uh, veterans affairs, the policy person for first responders, um, I guess, trust and safety or public safety or something wasn't able to be there, but she followed up with, with that person. Um, and, you know, so it's really educating those that come forward and say, Hey, I want a treatment in something, but what are my options? What can I do? How can I get something, you know, to be done? Um, there's a bunch of different options out there. It's just a question of what, what do you want to do and what is the best for you? And I am in no way a mental health professional. So don't ever take that as an endorsement to anything, right? Sure. You got to go through process. You got to see the right people and make sure that you're diagnosed. And then does that fit the bill for X, Y, or Z? And then ultimately you do. Yeah. Uh, we are not doctors, but we did yeah. say it on Holiday Express last night. So for whatever yeah. that should be. <laughs> uh, so again, no official yeah. endorsement from the Hazard Ground Podcast or any of its subsidiaries or constituents or guests or hosts or anything else. Uh, yeah. Let me get my disclaimer facts out of there right now, just to cover my uh, my keystone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So the work is ongoing and continues. And look, it's amazing. Uh, and and I would highly suggest that you know everybody please go and and check this stuff out because it, it's it's so important if you're a veteran and and you're searching for something different or searching for some level of of um you know, experience or, or some, some level of care that you haven't gotten to this point. Yep. So again, I think it's, it's, it's super important that you, that you do so. Uh, and the website is one inner circle, uh, com with the number one, right? So that's inner circle. That's the risk resiliency. Okay, that's, I'm sorry. That's the wrong yeah. one. Outer circle foundation.org is, it. Yep, is the foundation. Yeah. Got it. Outer circle foundation.org. Yep. Uh, we have a golf outing on October 12th in right. Bears Nest. Um, yep. So we'll be back there. We have a, I fully, I fully expect an invite, uh, and, oh, absolutely. And all, yeah, yeah. All, all, all the way through. So yeah. 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 So it'll, it'll be a fun day. Come out and play. And if you, even if you don't play golf, come out and visit. Cause we'll have- I do play golf. Come on, man. I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a big part of life these days. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm inching closer towards retirement, not, but, uh, I try to, I try to golf as much as I can. It's therapeutic, at least for yes, me. Yes, For sure. That's my, my ganglion block going. <laughs> Um, there you go. It's my, my version of uh, ayahuasca, whatever the hell you want to yeah. call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
for you, and, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll try to phrase the question a different way. Um, if you quantify everything that you've done between helping Afghans get out and now veterans and PTSD, um, and you sat there and said, Dad, look at all I've done. What do you think his response would be? You done good. Yeah. You know, but I mean, so at the end of the day, right. I mean, we're no different than a million other nonprofits that are out there trying to do the same sure, thing. Sure, but Yeah. But I, we are making some impact. So short that way. Yeah. I mean, it's just me. It's just, it's, it's the way I'm wired. My wife gets on me left and right about this at, at all times, but we are doing everything that we possibly can to make sure that they're educated, make sure they have the resources that they need and, you know, do everything that we can. Even if we can't help, I probably know somebody out there that can and put you in contact with those people, um, you know, whoever it happens to be. So, well, look, again, I, I was drawn to, you know, just for the pull back the curtain for the audience, you know, as soon as I saw combat control, I'm like, okay, there's a story here. <laughs> Generally, most combat controllers have a story. Uh, you do have a story, but when we first connected, you gave me the line that a lot of people give me when I, when I ask them to come on the show. Well, I don't have a story. I was like, you have a story. Trust me. It's there. And then we started talking a little bit more and you told me about all the work with Afghanistan and everything else. And that really kind of was just like, okay, we need to, we need to share this with people. Uh, cause I, I think it's great. And, and I hope the people that you worked with, um, are still continuing to do it because it, it need, we need more awareness brought to this. Um, yeah. Yeah, and there's a couple, right? Afghan Free is one of the organizations. Go to afghanfree.org. They're they're still doing it. Tarjo Man is still doing it. Um, uh, uh, the Moral Compass Group is still there. I think about 20 different nonprofits got together and they're under the Moral Compass Group. And that's uh, Scott Mann and and those guys. Um, I mean, just I, I want people to just think about this for a second. Afghanistan falls, and everybody who was there and got out alive, okay was able to come home their first reaction is i need to run back there and go get the people who helped me yep. i need to walk back into as much chaos as i left if not more and go get the people who helped me because somebody else was supposed to do it and they didn't yep. uh, that is a a level of commitment uh and trust and companionship and ethos and love um that I think is really hard for people to comprehend uh, unless you've served alongside those people. Like I, I genuinely do. And, and uh, the fact that you, as somebody who didn't serve alongside those people, put so much commitment and effort and, and uh, you know, care into it uh, to me, it says everything I need to know about uh, the fact that you missed combat three times that you would have, <laughs> survived, you, you would have survived. You, you would have done well. You, you would have, you know, you, you, you've answered all those questions about, how would I have performed? Because you're performing, right? Like it's, you know, for you, you might not ever feel the same way, but I can tell you from an outsider's perspective, this is performing at the highest level because guess what? There are guys like me not doing a damn thing about it. Yeah. Well, you're doing it. You're, you're, well, I'm, I'm helping in a different way, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like I, I'm, I, you know, uh, you know, full disclosure, hazard ground community. If they said, Mark, we need to go to Afghanistan and walk around on the ground, and help get people out of it. Like, uh, yeah, hard pass. I'm good. Thanks. You know, um, just not my thing. Like, I, you know, I, yeah. one, I never served in Afghanistan. It was Iraq twice. But, you know, beyond that, it's just like, 
there are a lot of us right now, justifiably so, who are like, I got to live the rest of my life. I got to go forward. Yeah. You know, um, the fall of Afghanistan was terrible. We all had emotions about it. We all had feelings about it and everything else. And, you know, mine certainly were never of the level of those who served there. But, you know, you get the point. Um, yeah. Trying to go backward is tougher for a lot of us because all we're trying to do is take a step forward each day. And you learn that with your PTSD folks, right? We just want to take a step forward each day because there's so much pulling us backward. Yeah. Um, yeah. Beyond yeah. all that, we, we we could have this conversation for hours on end. But I, I do want to just, again, express genuine thanks and gratitude for all that work because I think that's super important. And the work you're doing with PTSD now with veterans, uh, again, uh, OuterCircleFoundation.org is the place to go. Just incredible. Uh, I, I, I will tell you, you know, again, uh, I, I know uh, your family is proud of you and, and rest easy knowing that your dad is watching down over everything you're doing. And, and uh, he is nodding his head in approval. He is, he's giving you that, uh, that salute that, like you said, you've done good because you have, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's worthwhile. So continue to great work. And, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Matt Payne. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey.